Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome back to Talking with Traders. This is the fifth season of the podcast to take us up to the end of 2022. Thanks to all our loyal listeners for returning and welcome to all our new listeners. As before, IG Markets have come on board as sponsors of this podcast. We're truly grateful to have such an award-winning CFD provider as sponsor alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some guests from the previous seasons of the podcast to get their updated market views, and we'll also be bringing in some new guests to the microphone too. As always, the aim with these podcasts is to give you the opportunity to listen to differing market views and to assist you with your own trading and investing education. So with that in mind, let's get straight into another episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders, and I'm delighted to welcome once again the Finance Ghosts. This is the, the third time we're catching up, Ghost. Um, and it's been more or less a year that we've chatted every year since I started this podcast. I was looking back at my notes and it was around about October of last year, October 2021, that we last spoke. And uh, here we are in October 2022 doing it again. Welcome back to the podcast. Tell us what you've been up to since we spoke the last time. Thanks, Garth. It's so nice to do these with you. This is, as you say, the third one. And uh yeah, luckily, because this business has grown from zero at the start of the pandemic, I guess there's always a cool story to tell every year. Yeah. <laughs> at some point, that will surely slow down. But um, yeah, it has been it has been a really busy time. I mean, I think probably the biggest change for me has been Ghost Mail moving to a daily publication. It kind of got merged with uh, Insconnect, and now it goes to a nice big audience on a daily basis. Mm. So yeah, I've now had to experience what it's like to take two very different publications and try and merge it into one for an audience and try and hang on to that audience. So there's always, there's always something to learn. And uh, even outside of the markets, I think that's what's fun with what we actually both do is it's the markets, but then on top of that, it's running a business around the markets, mm. which just makes life particularly interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah. It's fun though, paddling your own boat and, you know, knowing it's small enough and nimble enough that you can pull your own levers to change things and change direction quite quickly. You know, both you and I do come back, come from corporate backgrounds in earlier in our lives. Um, and I think both you and I know that 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 can be quite frustrating, especially if you're a entrepreneurial type of person and you want to be able to be nimble and move quickly. Um, you know, unshackling yourself from the corporate bureaucracy is quite liberating, isn't it? Yeah, I'm unemployable now. So <laughs> people say to me like, what keeps you going? Like, well, there's no possibility of me failing because I am literally unemployable. Once you've tasted that ability to just change something in the space of two hours or decide how to spend your afternoon, oh, you can't, you can't go back. It's like a, it's like a horse bolting into the, you know, into the fields. <laughs> it doesn't want to go back to the stable. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't. So you, you've, you've done a lot in the last year. You've, as you said, you've partnered up with Insconnect, which has made your distribution of ghost mail such a lot bigger than what it was previously. I must say, you probably find that everybody listening to this podcast is already receiving that ghost mail emailer every morning because I know it's a big database. But you know, if any of you listening to this are not receiving ghost mail in the morning, you really should subscribe to it because it's it's absolutely brilliant. And what I particularly like with what you're doing there is the ghost bites, which is essentially where you take the previous day's market news, the sends announcements, anything that's significant in terms of company developments or economic developments, and basically package it into a very neat, tight, 
easy to read and quick to read emailer that keeps you up to date with with what's going on at various companies results uh, corporate actions etc cetera, etc cetera. that's exciting but obviously also what we spoke about last time was your magic markets premium service and and i was just listening back to our previous podcast at that stage you had just started magic markets premium and i think you had only done one episode which is the episode on nike and now i look back you've published you've, you've covered 43 different companies since then <clears throat> and i think about 50 different podcasts so that thing has really really grown i mean that is that, that is very impressive Thank you. Yeah, we're very proud of it. It's uh, I always lose track of time on these things, but you're right. There was basically only one in the library when we last spoke. So it feels like a very long time ago, but it's not even a year ago. And it, it has been great. I think Magic Markets Premium is a product that I'm super, super proud of. The whole idea behind it was to take institutional level insights and deliver them to people at a decent price. You know, the overseas sub stacks written by Americans are hellishly expensive now with what's happened with the dollar. Mm. They really are. Yeah. And I'm, well, I like to think that what we're doing is at least on par with that. I mean, obviously, our, you know, the market decides for itself. You either grow your subscription base if it's good or you, or you don't if it's not good. But I think what's really fun is to be able to cover such a huge variety of companies. So the reason that, you know, there's 42 companies, I'm glad you've counted them, uh, versus, you know, the number of shows is just because some of those shows are recap shows. So we like to have this feedback loop where we go back and say, okay, you know, this is what we thought was going to happen with these two or three companies. What actually happened? What's the latest? Mm. We typically wait about two quarters before we will actually do that. I think we do another recap show. I think we've now had uh, about seven in a row that are not recaps. The last recap was Disney and Netflix. So that was a nice yeah. themed one yeah. around streaming. But yeah, it's been great. I love doing it with my partner, Mohammed Nala, a name that a lot of people also know. I mean, he's held a lot of senior roles in financial services, in markets, so it's lovely. It's it's a real honor to be able to actually bring this kind of stuff to such a nice audience. Yeah, no, it is. And it's it's brilliant. I mean, it's 99 Rand a month for the subscription. You're getting effectively four podcasts a month, but the quality of the work that you do is unbelievable. I mean, I think for 99 Rand a month, it's just it's it, it's such good value. It's probably the one debit order that goes off my account every month, which I'm I literally smile when I see that money going off because I know the value that I'm getting for it is is just so immense. Um, and for listeners of this podcast, I mean, I can strongly, strongly recommend that if you're not already a subscriber to Magic Markets Premium, you really should subscribe. It's just the, the quality of the analysis that you guys do on the companies that you cover is is second to none. And I mean, just to list a couple of names, as you said, there's, there's 43 companies that you've covered in the last year. So I'm not going to obviously go through every single one of them. But I mean, the, there are names there like Nike, Microsoft, um, Nestle, Tesla, Visa, Disney, Netflix, uh, Starbucks. Uh, you know, I could keep going. There's a lot of very, very big, well-established US companies there that you go into. And then these podcasts that you do are all, they're around about 30 minutes long, each of them. So it's not like you have to spend a hell of a lot of time listening. It's the information is short, sharp, punchy, and it's it's absolutely brilliant. But now that I've said that, I've given you a nice plug, which I'm always happy to do, Ghost. Um, what you. we've what we've decided to do for this episode of Talking with Traders is actually hone in on three of the stocks that you've covered recently in your podcasts, um, just to talk about each of them, and, and and I guess give listeners to this podcast the elevator pitch is what you call it. Uh, in other words, you know, if you were caught up with someone in an elevator for 
two minutes or less and you had to tell them about a company in that short space of time, um, how would you go about it? You could give them the elevator pitch. The three companies that I want to cover with you are Accenture, uh, Cisco, and Ferrari. And I'd like to do them in that order. We'll keep Ferrari for last because I think both you and I are petrol heads. So there's an exciting aspect to that as well that we'll talk about at the end of the podcast. But let's start with a look at Accenture. Uh, yeah, I listened to the podcast with you. And I guess with each of these podcasts that I listened to, I came back and I said, what, what would I kind of give a give it a label? And Accenture, I came away with the label that I call it the glue that binds the Fortune 500. Tell yeah. us a bit about Accenture. Give me the elevator pitch. Garth, we should get you to write our elevator pitches because that's a very good one-liner on uh, on Accenture. So, you know, for those who aren't necessarily familiar with it, Accenture is one of the biggest management consulting names in the world. And the difference with Accenture is they are very technology-driven. So this is quite different to a McKinsey or a Bain, for example, which is full of strategy consultants and MBAs and efficiency projects and, you know, which market should we expand into Accenture does some of that stuff too, make no mistake, but Accenture is very driven by technology-based consulting. So they will come into a group, they will help you with your cloud journey. They will help you figure out what you should be doing in AI or in big data. In fact, if you can think of a buzzword, you will find a consultant. That is the golden rule. Mm. And this gives them a really, really cool model. So in the report, we actually joked, you know, welcome to the Hotel California because these, these consultants check out, but they never leave. Yeah. And the reason they never leave is because these big companies become dependent on Accenture. They like to think that they don't, but you can imagine a situation where the CFO or the CTO, I think it's often the CFO actually, needs to deliver some kind of transformative technology-driven project across the group. And I'm using all the horrible sort of corporate terms that we both left behind and definitely mm. don't miss, but this mm. is how the world works. Mm. How do you do that? You're not going to go and hire a team of people to come in and work only for you in delivering this project. It makes no sense. Accenture is a team in a box. It's literally you sign a contract, everyone arrives, they are the right people. Accenture's done all the hard work to find them, train them, you know, make sure they can do their jobs and ban you are off and away. Goodness knows you pay for the privilege. Mm. But the alternative is not obvious. So people who have never worked with consultants or never seen this in action always think, but why? Why do I have these high paid execs? Why do they still need consultants on top of that? And people forget it's project-based stuff or it's something that the organization doesn't do in its day-to-day. -day. It's not any different to hiring in an investment bank to help you with mergers and acquisitions. You know, if you are a group that doesn't typically do M&A, you definitely need to get advice or you're going to mess it up. Mm. It's exactly the same with Accenture. So, you know, that Hotel California way of thinking is a very, very cool um, model. It's a wonderful business model, actually. And because so many corporates have done these big tech journeys now, Accenture has really just come into its own in the last couple of years. I mean, it was doing well before then, but the pandemic just accelerated everyone's, you know, digitalization journey and cloud, et cetera, is just so part of our daily speak now that yeah. there's no, you know, you just can't, just can't ignore it. Yeah. I must say something, if I can say one other thing that's really impressive on Accenture is the way they've delivered operating leverage. So what that means is basically revenue growing ahead of expenses. And it's unusual because it's a people business. So you kind of think to yourself, well, they'll always make a margin on the next person they hire. But what these guys are doing is they're managing to make more money on each successive person they hire, which is really, really impressive. And I was quite surprised by that. So just so I understand that you say that, I mean, let's just break it down into a very simplistic example. Let's say you get a, you know, an Accenture consultant comes into your business. 
that guy gets billed at 3,000 Rand an hour to the client. And possibly they're only paying the consultant, you know, 2,000 Rand an hour for his time. So are you saying that the, that, that they're, that that they're obviously they're hiring more and more consultants, all right, which gives them higher revenue line. I suppose every every additional consultant that they hire then is just an extra in that kind of example, it's an extra thousand rand an hour profit, and you're just leveraging other people's time. Is that what you're saying? That's what you would think, right? But yeah. actually, if you look over the years, it's a thousand profit, then it's a thousand and five, then it's a thousand and ten. And I think there's a couple of things happening here. So you've got to keep your utilization rate really high. So that's your billable hours. So mm -hmm. if you hire someone and they sit idle every Friday, you know, busy Googling the, the sport for the weekend, you're not making money. So the more of their hours you can bill and get them into clients, obviously, the more money you make as Accenture. So that's one point. Utilization rates, though, have been pretty steady over the past two years on a quarterly basis. I mean, this is a metric that Accenture reports on because it's so important. So it's not that that is driving the operating leverage. So what else is it? Obviously, there are central costs. And if you've got 2 million consultants or if you've got 20 consultants, your head office still costs you X, you still have a listed structure, you still have a CEO. So that's yeah. just a good example of like scale. That obviously helps a bit with margins. But actually what I think is going on here is the pricing mix has actually improved. So because there's such demand for what Accenture is doing, they are able to just constantly look for what is the next best thing they can consult on to maximize what they are able to charge for it. So they are finding ways to increase that charge rate, keep the utilization strong and manage their central costs. And what that does to your profitability is just gorgeous, honestly. I mean, that is mm -hmm. just how you grow, right? That is exactly what you want to see a company doing with your money. There's not a lot of stocks you can buy and just put in the top drawer. But yeah. when you see that kind of stuff coming through, you don't need to look every three months at how it's doing. Yeah, yeah. A couple of the stats that you mentioned on your podcast really stuck out for me. The one that stuck out the most was that you said that Accenture is in or consults to 75% of the Fortune 500 companies in the US. I mean, that is unbelievable. 75% amazing isn't it it, it is amazing i mean and, and you talk about yeah. sticky clients right like you said hotel california you can check out but you never leave i mean sticky clients as you say once you're in there you know the companies quickly realize that they can't be without accenture um 720 000 staff around the world and growing that quite rapidly right yes they are and they'll keep growing it as long as the demand comes through they'll just keep on adding staff they'll keep acquiring businesses actually that's another point on accenture that is worth mentioning is they're not shy of acquisition so what they do because the accenture brand is actually just a very strong brand they manage mm -hmm. to stay out of trouble it's not like mckinsey and bain in south africa accenture somehow manages to stay out of trouble and it's one of the big risks to the story is what if they don't yeah just uh, that's a bare point but for now they have and they go and acquire, you know, they've acquired like digital agencies before to start offering those sort of services. So the Accenture brand is just so versatile that they can just jump into a sector. You know, ESG is now the buzzword. Well, what does that mean? It means consultants are ready. What do you do as Accenture? You can yeah. go and get your own ESG team, or you can go and acquire people who have already demonstrated an ability to do it mm. and just plug them into your distribution network, mm. right? I mean, that's really... That's really what Accenture is, is this incredible distribution network to win business. Anyone who's ever run their own company will know how hard it is, no matter how great you are as a consultant, to constantly be trying to win business and grow your pipeline is super difficult. 
if you just sell your business into Accenture, moving there, you just get given the clients just fall from the sky. You know, yeah. their phones ring as opposed to out there hunting for business. It's incredible. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And what I liked is, as you said, it's an asset light business. So very, it's very low fixed assets. I mean, this is, it's entirely an intellectual capital business, effectively. There's no meaningful fixed assets in a business like Accenture. Um, Just on that, Garth, actually, and and that's absolutely right. And a trick when you're looking at a balance sheet, if you see, if you see a big asset number, just always go that level down and just look what it is. Cause sometimes it's fixed assets, sometimes it's goodwill. If it's goodwill, that's a result of lots and lots and lots of acquisitions of other people businesses. Yeah. So basically the way the accounting works is if they don't have assets either, you can't recognize assets. You just have to call it goodwill because that's really what you've bought is a brand yeah. and people and a team. And that's the story with Accenture. They have a big balance sheet, but it's all goodwill. It's not stuff that eats up capital year on year. They could just stop doing acquisitions if they wanted to and just mm. grow off the current balance sheet. Mm. Mm. One of the, the the issues you made mention of in the in your bear box when you were doing the podcast was that um, it's it's quite a it's quite dollar focused. So in other words, I mean they do they generate a lot of revenue internally with the US dollar within the US, but they also operate outside of the US in in, in a large way as well. And obviously, with a strong dollar at the moment, that means that when they take those offshore earnings and translate it back into dollar profits, the strong dollar hurts them. It's a a negative, I guess. So that's one um, headwind, I suppose, in the short term, given that we've got such a strong dollar. But then that could also turn at some point. I don't think this dollar can stay as strong as it is forever. At some point, it's likely to to correct. So that probably could actually be quite a big boost to earnings when you do start to see a weaker dollar, surely. Yeah, the dollar needs to, <laughs> needs to head back lower at some point. I mean, the world can't carry on forever like this and it's actually the case for so many american companies because we look at so many it's really interesting even the biggest names in the world still make like 70 percent of their income in the u.s Mm. and then the rest of the world is the rest of the income right yeah and it's just fascinating so the u.s is such a monstrous market and we always forget that but there is still a big international component to those earnings and when the dollar is strong it's not great news for them let's face it so that's part of why stocks go down when that dollar gets stronger you know, as opposed as the dollar weakens, the stocks will definitely get a bump. The frustration for South Africans investing offshore is if you take your rand out now, you get killed on the exchange rate. So yeah. you buy the dip. But if you look in rands, then mm. you know you haven't necessarily done as well as you as you would hope. So yeah. the frustration is you've got to try and time the currency and time the market, and that's yeah. not easy. No, it's not. So you said I mean you do own the stock, or well, you certainly did when we spoke yeah, uh, no, when I, I listened to the podcast. You own it; it's in it's in your portfolio. I mean, looking at the share price, it's come down quite a lot um, mm. since you did the podcast, and over mm-hmm. the but but then so has the whole of the U.S. market. I mean, we're in a bear market. Mm. The the thing that excites me, uh, and this is maybe just selfishly, but I've you know been cautious on this market for for a, a while and have largely just been sitting on cash for the whole of the last year. So it's quite exciting to see these kinds of companies getting back down to you know what, what looks like far more appealing value um and and that's why just again to reiterate the, the the importance to the listeners of going and listening to these market magic markets podcasts go back and listen to some of the older ones because there are amazing stories of brilliant brilliant us businesses there and a lot of these businesses are on sale right now they're trading 30 40 50% below the prices that you would have been able to pick them up for a year ago so you know accenture is one of those as well so certainly one that i'd be looking to add to my portfolio now um, yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And in each show, you know, for those who haven't on subscribers who haven't seen one, you know, we go through the technicals and we go through the fundamentals and anyone who's ever looked at a share price chart will be well aware that it bounces around and the best you can hope for is a long-term trend. So we always indicate, you know, support and resistance levels, et cetera. Um, My partner, uh, Mohamed Nala does all of that because the technicals are still something I'm learning about all the time, Mm. but it's not something that I have tons of experience with. So I know where to play and where to, and where to watch. Mm. Um, and fundamentally, you know, we actually said in the podcast, like Accenture can definitely get cheaper. It's not cheap right now. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, do you want to buy it and own it for the next five years? Well, flip, it's hard to make a case against, you know, the, the question is, will big corporates keep spending on tech? Yeah. Okay. If yes, then Accenture. Like yeah. that. <laughs> you know, that's quite it. simple, really. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's not rocket science, right? No, no. Yeah, that's it. But I guess also you know, with investing, you do you, the, you know, the direction of the overall market is half the battle. And at the moment, the di- direction of the overall market is down. But yeah. having said that, that gives you the opportunity to buy these really good companies at, at better prices than if you had bought them at the top of the bull market. So certainly time to start looking to to nibble on these things. The next company I want to chat about uh, is is Cisco. Now, this is not Cisco, the what most listeners would think is the hardware company that sells routers and networking equipment. Not that Cisco. This is it's, S- also, it's also not nineties music Cisco with yeah. bleach blonde hair. Just <laughs> in case anyone's one. curious. No, yeah, it's no. not that one either. This is Cisco S Y S C O, and the share code is S Y Y on the New York Stock Exchange. So this is like the Bitcorp of America. Uh, or the Bitvest of America. Um, and I, I said to you, if I had to could have put a kind of a headline on it, the one I would have given to this podcast was dividend aristocrat that is growing. That's basically the best way I think I could describe that that podcast you did on Cisco in, in one line. Um, dividend aristocrat means it's a consistent dividend payer and not only consistent dividend payer, but a, the dividend consistently grows. And, but, but, what is unusual about that is that this is a company that actually is also growing its earnings. A lot of your typical dividend aristocrat companies are mature businesses that are not growing. They've just got to a point where they generate so much cash, they pay most of it out as a dividend. And those are your dividend aristocrats. But to find a dividend aristocrat that is also actually growing its earnings is quite rare. And this company is growing at actually quite a rapid clip. So give us the elevator pitch for, uh, for Cisco. Yeah, so you were right on the first one. It is like Bidcorp in America. So Bidvest, when when they unbundled Bidcorp, they gave away all their food service businesses Mm. effectively. So Bidcorp became this pure play food service business. And that's very much what Cisco is. Much like Accenture, the first step is always, what does the company do and why does it have strong demand? So in this case, what what is food service? Well, food service means if you own a restaurant, every day you need to get deliveries of the food that you need for your menu. Now, there is a 0% chance you're going to go and walk around your local grocery store and buy what you need for a million reasons, right? So this whole industry exists that delivers to restaurants. And it's really interesting. It's very integrated. They have all sorts of value adds, like helping you design your menu. Because let's face it, you can buy your meat from a whole bunch of different suppliers. I know that fancy restaurant owners will say how they pick their food carefully, and I don't doubt they do. But even then, there will be several suppliers of even you know Wagyu beef. That's just mm. how this works. Mm. So how do you compete as these suppliers? Well, scale is a big one, making sure you've always got the products that your customers need and you can always deliver on time. It's a bit like e-commerce, but aimed at restaurants and hotels and caterers. Another way you win is by having value adds like helping people with their menus, et cetera. So, you know, that's what we saw coming through in 
Cisco, which was interesting. But really, it's a huge supply chain. It's a massive logistics business. If you can imagine Famous Brands, which is a big franchise player, Famous Brands is a logistics company. They don't mm. own the steers that you buy your burger from. A local, per well, someone somewhere owns that steers and mm. pays franchise fees and royalties and everything else to Famous Brands. And Famous Brands is the back end that delivers the food to make sure you know what you're getting when you buy a steers burger. Now, Cisco doesn't have franchise businesses in the way that a Famous Brands does, but they are the back end. They are everything that happens behind that in making sure that restaurants are looked after. And there's, a, there's an unbelievable statistic. Cisco, this is almost like the Accenture one on the percentage yeah. of S&P 500. It's as crazy. Yeah, They serve 50% of restaurant doors in the US. I mean, just fathom <laughs> half the restaurants in the US buy from Cisco. Like, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. It, it, that, that was one of the, the key metrics that I was going to mention. It's just mind-blowing. You mentioned in your podcast that this is like the business that's it sells the shovels in the gold rush, or you know, or also think like the wheelbarrows in a in a gold rush. You know, you don't want to be the guy necessarily taking on all the risk, but if you're selling shovels or selling wheelbarrows in a gold rush, well, you're not taking on any risk. You're just supplying to this massive industry, and that's exactly what Cisco is effectively doing, right? They're just the back end, like you said. They've they're they're supplying the food, they're providing the logistics. The restaurants take the risk. They have the, you know, the 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 the, the issues with customers, etc. If there are issues, whereas Cisco is just the back end; they're just providing the the raw material, really. Yeah, and I mean, it's the old joke, right? That restaurants are a really good way to lose money, and sadly, they are. Most restaurants fail. When they do well, they do well, but when they, on on average, they don't. Yeah, and and that's the point here. That's the sort of the sort of gold rushes, you know. Someone opens a restaurant hoping they are the next Gordon Ramsay in pursuit of this huge, amazing, wonderful story. And a very tiny percentage of people actually get there. Mm. But goodness knows you can sell them food along the way. So Cisco's business model is, you know, when someone makes it big in the restaurant industry, great for them. That's not an economic profit pool that Cisco is chasing. They just want to make the right margin from a whole variety of people. Um, and it's a and it's a great it's a great business. I mean, locally, Checkers even plays in the space. They've got Checkers Food Services as a little mm. competitor to Bidcorp. You know, okay. So it's you you can see. I mean, for a business like Checkers to be spending some time on this, you can see why it's an attractive attractive yeah. place to play. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the the metrics, I mean, sales. That this is the guidance for twenty twenty three. They're looking for sales growth of ten percent and earnings to grow thirty percent in twenty twenty three. That's a big number especially in a recessionary environment, which you're in at the moment. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's it's the joy of operating leverage coming through. Mm. And people forget how powerful operating leverage actually is. Sales growth of 10% sounds tame. Yeah. But if your expenses are, are really only doing six, then, yeah. you know, go write it in a little spreadsheet. Just make up numbers, 150, blah, 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 and just see what the percentage difference is at earnings level. And that's the story here, you know. Yeah. And, and here I expect to see operating leverage because you know, each distribution center can improve its capacity utilization. The more restaurants come on, the more that local DC is busy. So this 
on this business, you expect to see operating leverage. And remember, it works against you just as quickly. If restaurants are in trouble, that distribution center starts to look like a great big white elephant and it gets very ugly very quickly. So mm. that's why I was so surprised on Accenture because you wouldn't expect that to have operating leverage. And on the downside, Accenture just retrenches people. I mean, it sounds heartless, but that's what will happen. Mm. You can't just retrench your distribution center. <laughs> so when your operating leverage is coming from fixed assets, it's good and you expect to see it, but it's kind of the expectation. When operating leverage is coming from warm bodies, that was a bit of a, a mind-blowing one for me. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So just on Cisco, I mean, the share price has actually fallen about 15% since you published mm -hmm. your podcast yeah. on it. Uh, nothing's changed in the business model. Nothing, as far as I know, has changed in the guidance for next year's earnings growth. Um, the shares have just got cheaper. They've just derated a little bit in line with the whole of the market that's derated. So, I mean, I actually have bought myself some Cisco shares in the last mm. week because I, I, I mean, I love the story that you told on your podcast and, and the fact that the stock is, you know, well off its highs and now at, at quite an interesting sort of long-term support level, I've gone in and bought some of those for my, for my long-term portfolio. And obviously we'll collect the two and a half percent dividend yield in addition, um, while I wait for you know for markets to recover, so quite happy with that one. And you own that in your portfolio too, right? So I was actually also waiting on Cisco. So um, you know we looked at it and we said, look, you can go with a gentle approach, but macro mm. volatility. We actually said literally macro volatility may give you an opportunity to add to the mm. position. So hey, mm. here we are. Um, yeah. I'm also I'm also waiting. I, I really don't think it's a bad time to start to start adding some. I really don't. Um, it's a very interesting business and. You know, one of the other things I just wanted to to quote from the report, we we always look at the long-term share price CAGR, so that's compound annual growth rate, because yeah. it just tells you what has happened, right? Don't ignore history. Mm. So fascinatingly, over 10 years, share price CAGR, 10.8%. Yeah. Over five years, 10.7%. Mm. How much, like how consistent is that? And there's a pandemic in that period. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's just incredible to see what this company can do. And the one point we certainly made was, if you're looking to buy this as a post-pandemic story around restaurants recovering or whatever, you are way too late. Yeah. The market is months ahead of you on this mm. one. Mm. Uh, now you're buying it because you like the long-term story in general. Mm. Uh, and very different to, you know, just a comment on Bitcorp as a local example. Bitcorp is very Europe heavy, whereas Cisco is very US heavy. So yeah. if you enjoy pairs trading, mm. there is a relatively interesting long short here. Yeah. Maybe. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also given the fact that, you know, the US is energy independent whereas europe is not at the moment it makes life making life difficult in, in europe right now absolutely all right then let's get to the last company on the list for for now um and that is ferrari and i love this the americans have quite a, a cool way of coming up with their share codes sometimes for the stock so ferrari's share code is race r-a-c-e um, another one in the automotive space which i love is the harley davidson share code which is hog H O G. Yes. And have um, you seen Porsche? The new, the new Porsche? Yes, 911. Yeah, it's yeah. P911. Yeah, P911. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah. And there's 911 million shares. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, that's very cool. So fun. But let's talk about Ferrari. Um, and again, if I had to give my one liner for this after listening to your podcast on Ferrari, I'd say the ultimate luxury goods brand. And People listening to this podcast might think, hang on a second, you know, luxury goods are watches and expensive handbags and things like that, not motor cars. But Ferrari is more than just a motor car company. I mean, obviously we know the cars, we love the we, we love the cars. There is a luxury 
like a um, sort of luxury items element in addition to the cars, but that's not big. But it's really, it, when saying that, it's the people who buy Ferraris are the same people who are buying very expensive watches or very expensive handbags, right? It's just another luxury item on their list, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's the finer things in life. That is the reality. And Ferrari's tech backs it up. I mean, most people have never driven a Ferrari. I've been very lucky to drive two um, on proper roads. Mm. They are different. They are very different. Like they, there's a reason why these things cost what they cost. And there's a reason why they have the reputation that they have. Uh, Ferrari 458 is the, is the most recent one I drove. A friend of mine has one. And it's insane. The, it, I've driven lots of fast cars. There's nothing like a 458 and the way it <laughs> behaves on the road. So, you know, we can we can fanboy about this thing all day. And obviously when we did the show, you know, Mo also likes cars. We were very conscious that there's no value here in going, oh, we love Ferraris, just buy the shares. So we yeah. didn't do that. You know, you've got to look deeper than that. And the deep story here is that it is a luxury goods company. They've actually just hired a senior exec forgotten now where she was previously but it was one of the luxury goods businesses she's now coming as the sort of head on the marketing and the branding side and the ceo in place now has a tech background so mm. you know these are by no means mechanics who work themselves up through the story you know ferrari understands that its future is where tech and luxury meet ultimately and ferrari is just the most aspirational brand every single person knows the brand ferrari there's no one who doesn't know that brand and Yes, a lot of people will say, oh, I'd never have one of those. Oh, I hate them. 99% of people who say that can't afford them. So <laughs> the reality is there's there's a lot of people who love them. And yet they still have a relatively low market penetration among what they define as ultra high net worth or high net worth individuals, which tells you there's still, there's still room to grow in this thing. They actually have a scarcity model. So they deliberately constrain their manufacturing and their supply to drive demand. Ferrari is not interested in selling you a magic market subscription for 99 Rand a month. They want to sell you very few subscriptions for 5,000 Rand a month. And they want to sell you even fewer super subscriptions for 50,000 Rand a month on an invitation only basis. I mean, that's the best for me. The collector's list, you get Mm. invited to buy the Icona models as they're called. Mm. And they are like eye-watering amounts of money. People think 3 million Rand for a car is a lot of money. And of course it is. It Mm. is by any measure but not in this world. In this world, 50 million rand is a lot of money for a car. (laughs) That's what you're dealing with here. And the margins on each one are just eye-watching. It's incredible. Yeah. And what I really liked about that is, again, like this is, we're talking the very, very sharp end of capitalism here. But like you said, to get into those Icona models and to be a part of that collector's club, you have to buy the next collectible Ferrari when they bring it out. Because if you don't, they'll just take you off the list and you won't be asked to buy the next one. So it's it's kind of like also a little bit like your Hotel California uh, analogy. You know, you can check out, but you can never leave. You know, once you're in that club, if you want to stay in, you better buy that next collectible Ferrari for 50 million rand. Else you ain't going to be on the list for the next one after that. Exactly. Hotel Marinello in action. (laughs) I also found it interesting that the the client base for Ferrari is younger than what a lot of people might have thought. 40% of clients are younger than 40. I I thought uh, that was quite interesting. (laughs) Me too. And I actually, when I read that, I was like, okay, 
you know, Saka has the top 35 under 35. I, I've never had any interest in that. But mm. uh, <laughs> 40 under 40 to have a Ferrari is a, is a goal that I can get behind. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you're still there. You're still under 40. I've missed yeah, yeah, that. I've, still got, I've um, still got time. I'm only 34. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm 43, so I've missed that bus. I did have a Porsche before 30, which is nice. But uh, yeah, for, a Ferrari before 40 is not that. I've missed that bus, unfortunately. I might have to see. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get one before I'm 60. We've Let's got to get see. the stat for Ferrari buyers under 50, and then we know, we yeah, know where we're playing. That's what maybe, maybe it's 50 under 50. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, interestingly, they've got their new SUV, or you don't like to call it an SUV, and I, I'm kind of in that same camp. It doesn't look like an SUV. It's more like a like a sports car with a high suspension. The Pura Sung, I think I'm saying it right, or I hope I'm saying it right. Apparently Pura Sangwe, but I mean, good luck. Like okay. Everyone's going to say their own version of that thing. Yeah, Pura Sangwe. Okay, so it's the it's the Ferrari four-seater raised body. Yeah, mm. If you want to call it an SUV, it's not an SUV in, in my eyes, um, but it's an absolute thing of beauty. Now, other manufacturers well let's think of porsche i mean porsche has done very well with the cayenne and the mccann uh, yeah. but this is different ferrari is going to limit the production of those as well and it's so it's yeah because i initially thought okay well this is going to be a you know a high volume vehicle in, in ferrari speak but it's not is it no it's not and uh, i mean porsche the suv has changed Porsche. You know, if you go back to the pre-SUV days, they didn't really have money when the 996, 911 came out. Don't worry, I won't turn this into a car podcast. <laughs> but, you know, when the SUVs came out, they started. They suddenly started to make cash. And in 2021, the Cayenne and the Macan together were 57% of Porsche's deliveries, right? Mm. So that's almost 60% of the business now is selling SUVs. And Porsche does it very, very well. To be honest with you, my dream car for Mrs. Ghost is a Macan. Like if I could afford one for I'd buy it right now. Yeah. They are brilliant. Ferrari's not doing that. They are going to keep the Purasangwe to less than 20% of total shipments, which is still quite a big proportion of their business, right? It's mm. one model doing a fifth of their business. Yeah. But they don't want a situation where everyone can run around with a Ferrari, you know, SUV in inverted commas, because again, it just dilutes the brand. They want the majority of Ferrari cars on the road to be sports cars. Mm. They actually, uh, the, the CEO has this lovely quip at one of the recent market days, or maybe it was the chairman, it doesn't matter. But basically he said, you know, they asked him about autonomous driving. He said, we want we want people to enjoy the cars, not the microchips. Yeah. So there's there's no plan for <laughs> autonomous driving at Ferrari. Why would there be, right? It's completely not on brand. And the SUV is a big is a big step. You know, Lamborghini has done incredibly well off the Urus. Yeah. Aston Martin, all they've really got now is to keep them afloat is the DBX. Mm. So this market, and look, I, I get it. I mean, you've also got kids, got. Let's face it. It's lovely to pretend that in your 30s and 40s and, and 50s, maybe 50s when your kids are grown up, it's easier. But when you've got young kids, a two-seater car, unless you've got loads of parking space where it can literally be your weekend toy, mm. it's just not practical at all. You no. know, even a 911 is too small in the back, really, for kids. The new ones are not too bad. Yeah. Um, so this this model for Ferrari just makes a world of sense, you know. I, I cannot think of a of, of a more exotic and exciting way to take your kids to school. And if yeah. you've got this kind of money, then you're going to live your life, right? That's yeah. how people are. That's how capitalism works. Yeah, that's it. All right, so let's talk about the business side of it because as much, as much as you and I love talking about cars and we could probably talk about it all day, let's talk about Ferrari as the business. I mean, valuation-wise, it's never it's never cheap. It's on a, what, a 25 times PE at the moment. But then again, I guess that's the, the reality is quality is never cheap, is it? No, it's not ever cheap. I do think that Ferrari benefits from 
an emotional premium. Yeah. <laughs> I must be honest. I feel like a lot of people just want the share. Um, if that makes any sense, it's a mm -hmm. super aspirational brand and business. And it's the kind of thing where people are scrolling through a share portfolio going, what should I buy next? Oh, Ferrari's listed. Like I would love to have that in my portfolio. <laughs> so, I mean, that won't move the dial. It'll mainly be institutions and there's still big insider holding massively. So, you know, this is Italian mafia stuff goes all the way back. Italian captains of industry sit behind this, but it is a very expensive valuation. It's way higher than LVMH or Richemont. And that's your comparison, by the way. Don't yeah. don't go and look at the multiples that BMW is trading on. Then you're completely yeah. missing the point of Ferrari's business. This is yeah. a luxury goods business. Mm -hmm. You need to compare it to the other guys. Um, Hermes is is really the, the higher multiple than Ferrari. And that's an even more ultra premium business. I must be honest, I know everything about cars and I know nothing about high-end handbags and everything else. I just mm -hmm. have no interest. You know, everyone has their vices. <laughs> um, <laughs> even high-end watches for me, like at the very top end, really, I, I don't get it. They all tell the time. I suppose people yeah. say to me, but the Ferrari gets you from A to B. Yeah. And it's a similar argument. But yeah. I'm told <laughs> that, uh, you know, Hermes is kind of a really good uh, comparison to Ferrari in terms of real scarcity. And that trades on a higher multiple than Ferrari. So, it, the more scarce it gets, the higher the margins, the bigger the, the multiple. Mm. But the reality is Ferrari does feel somewhat overpriced to me at the moment. I'm not adding more at this price. I do own Ferrari partially because uh, in, in the pandemic, I sat down with Mrs. Ghost and I just said to her, you choose one share, I'll choose one share. Choose something aspirational for fun. So she chose Disney okay. and I chose Ferrari, uh, nice. which is why I think there's there's some kind of emotional premium that sits inside this thing. <laughs> um and yeah. a, a lot of the a lot of the return since listing has been multiple expansions. So this is a you know important fundamental point. When you're looking at the sources of return, obviously if something's done ten percent a year and earnings have done ten percent a year, that tells you that the multiple has stayed the same, right? And that's that, that's kind of cool because then you look at this and go, well, as long as the earnings story continues, this the stock is not going to hurt me. It stays at a certain multiple. Mm. When the multiple has expanded substantially, it means that the market is now placing more value on every dollar of earnings that Ferrari can manage to produce. And that is dangerous because if the sentiment changes, even if the underlying business is just as good as it's been for the last five years, if the sentiment changes, you can be 30% down yeah. easily. Yeah, And that's what's been happening in the market. So the one, I mean, Ferrari's down, at the time we did the show, it was down 23% this year. I'm not sure offhand what the year to date is now, but you know, this is the risk you take when uh, the the multiple has expanded so much over the years. And that's why I always, always look at where something is trading versus its historical multiples. It just helps you understand what risks are you really taking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Super. So we said we'd cover those three stocks, but what I also asked you uh, before the podcast is if you were to go and look at all of the 43 companies that you've covered on your Magic Markets Premium podcast series over the last year since we last spoke, and you had to pick five of those stocks to add to your portfolio now, what five would they be? Oh, that's an interesting, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So I think I would probably happily add Accenture at the moment, I think for all of the, you know, for all of the points raised. Yeah. Um, I certainly wouldn't be sad to add Cisco, although I think it's possibly possibly slightly earlier. Um, mm. we did have a look at Levi Strauss, and that looked that looked pretty good at the time. We looked at that back in July. Yeah. So that's something that might be worth, you know, might be worth considering actually. Um, long term, I would watch something like Lululemon, but you've got to watch the valuation. So I'm not necessarily saying I would add it right now, but Lululemon had a lovely business model yeah. uh, when we sort of unpacked that. We did that show back in April. 
it's just a brilliant brand. They literally built the athleisure market. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. You know, you won't see stuff like that very often. Mm. I'm sad to say that with the way the world is going, Lockheed Martin is probably not a terrible thing to have in your mm. portfolio. It, it's very hard to believe that US defense spending is going to go down from here yeah. with what's going on. I wish it was different, yeah. but uh, sadly it doesn't seem to be. And then, and I don't know if I've hit five yet, but something that is worth, you know, it's one of those stocks where who knows what's going to happen, but good old Meta, it's burnt me pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> in fact, it's burnt me very hard, but at some point it's got to be a buy. Yeah, and, Meta, uh, Facebook. I, uh, yeah. yeah, I see there's been a lot of news this week around their VR side. Who knows? Last one I would definitely touch on that I do really like is PepsiCo. Um, yeah. Great business. They really do well in the snacks aisle, massively so. Um, they've got Lay's, they've got Doritos, so that's a win. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of covers it. Visa's yeah. a goodie as well. Oh, there's so much yeah. in there, you know, and you've really got to go and dig in and just have a look at the combination of the technicals and the fundamentals. That's always the trick, right? Yeah, well, it, it is. It absolutely is. But now to listeners who, who are listening to this podcast, I'm just going to reiterate again. Go and subscribe to Magic Markets Premium if you aren't already subscribed. It's 99 Rand a month. It's ridiculously cheap for the value that you're getting. And you get four podcasts a month. But in addition to that, there's now this enormous library of, of intellectual capital sitting there. As I say, there's 43 companies covered in this library. I mean, you could go sit and binge listen to these podcasts. It'll take you a couple of days to listen to all of them. There's unbelievable wisdom in all of these. And what I, and why I stress this now is because a lot of these companies that you've spoken with, that you've covered in your Magic Markets Premium podcast are very good businesses. Um, and a lot of them are on sale right now. They're trading at a significant discount to where they were a, a year ago. So I think it's, you know, for listeners of this podcast, please, just do yourselves a favor and go and listen to Magic Markets Premium and and catch up on all of those uh, those past episodes because it's incredibly educational and it'll certainly help you in terms of making your own investment decisions. Last point I want to touch on because we're now running out of time, Ghost, is an initiative that you are embarking on. I don't know how far along you are with it, but I know that you. we've said you're a petrol head. We know that. Um, you were big into kart racing earlier on in your life. And I understand you're getting back into that and you've got a, a new charitable initiative that you're looking to set up. Yeah, that's right. So it's going to be called Racing for Rainbows. And mm. uh, basically what I'm looking to do is tap into the racing fraternity. You know, it's a sport that is very expensive. And what that means is that there's a lot of people who have money and who do the sport. I mean, that's the truth. So you've already kind of filtered out for whether or not people have the means to actually support something. And I just think that there's an ability to, you know, racing is a sport of passion. And if people can raise money around their racing, you know, whether they get their friends and family to say, you know, if I come top three, please won't you contribute something to my race result this week and actually pull that money together and use it for specific interventions. So stuff like, you know, kids who need to help with, a medical bill and their parents can't pay. I mean, I'm a dad. I cannot imagine a situation where toddler goes needs something and I can't pay for it. Mm. I have this strong belief that a big percentage of crime in this country is driven by desperation because mm. uh, I don't know what I would do to help him. I'm, I'm sure I would do a lot of things that are not legal, bluntly. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of people in that situation. And it's however easy to judge from the comfort of your own home what someone else is doing to feed their family. So the idea with this would be just to help with specific interventions. So it's not to support a foundation or a charity or something specific like that. It's rather to say, here is someone who needs help because of an injustice in the world. Mm. What can we do to help? 
pull those funds together and see what we can do. So the drivers who sign up as ambassadors uh, would actually have a, a SnapScan QR code, which they would be able to put on their race car, on their cart, on their rally car, on their bike, wherever they want to put it, on their websites, raise money, and it all comes to a central place. So it's very exciting. You know, I've already got a couple of people who have committed, people who are very serious racing teams. And yeah, I'm excited to see what I can do with it. I don't know where I'm going to get the time, but <laughs> I do want to start to use the platform for a greater good. And I think there's no shortage of ways to do that in South Africa. Yeah, well, that sounds fantastic. That's awesome. Well done. All right, Ghost, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again, as it always is. Um, I'll certainly be looking you up again another year from now so that we can catch up towards the end of 2023 and pick up on whatever's happened in your life and your business in the next year from now. But all the best, all the best with Racing for Rainbows. It sounds like a wonderful initiative. And uh, and all the best again with Magic Markets Premium and with your business. It's brilliant. Everything you're doing is just amazing to watch. And I'm a, a, a very keen spectator from the side watching your career flourish. Well done. Thanks, Garth. You've always been a big supporter of this and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.